This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we wake up in the ancient city of Sardis to see her history and glory, which should help us understand the message in the letter to her church. That's right. Uh, we are going to have a presentation today with kind of pictures, not a lot of them, but scattered throughout the whole conversation today. So if you want to pull up your presentation, if you're somewhere you can do that, obviously not driving, then... Uh, feel free to do that. These photos will also be in the chapter artwork if you have a podcast player that supports it. So you can find those uh, pictures there as we talk about them. So we now uh, turn our attention to the next church that receives one of the letters in Revelation, the church in Sardis, also known as Safarad, Safarad in the ancient world. Before it was Sardis, the Greco-Roman city of Sardis, it was known as being Safarad. What language is that? It's mm, a wonderful question. Prior I'm assuming, to assuming, well, Safarad's going to be Hebrew. Okay. It may have a more Semitic root as well and have a very similar um, uh, in, in other Semitic languages. But yeah, Safarad in the Hebrew. We'll be using the uh, same hermeneutic that we've been using this whole time uh, for all of John's apocalyptic literature. Uh, we studied this and really kind of rounded out our study of this hermeneutic in Thyatira. So this hermeneutic is built on the idea of John's simultaneous and two-sided approach to what we're going to call text and context, text to context, text to context, hashtag text to context. Uh, John takes the text of the Hebrew scriptures and applies it to the context of the Greco-Roman world of Asia. So let's start by pulling apart some of this context. Sardis was an ancient city founded by the Hittites, perhaps maybe earlier, but as far as we know, the Hittites founded the ancient, ancient, ancient city that would become Sardis. And uh, they eventually touted a a population of over 100,000 people. Its main economic staples were agriculture, purple dye made from a particular regional oak tree, So there's purple dye kind of all throughout the Roman Empire, but they had a very special purple dye that they were known for. And gold mined from the mountains of Sardis. The city was built around two mountains, which was generally, I'm sure there's another city that has that, but by and large of major Greco-Roman cities in Asia and Asia Minor, that is unique to Sardis. Sardis is the only one to have two almost twin mountains. And so we have on your first slide here, uh, we have that very first picture that you'll look at is the picture of the Acropolis, the Acropolis of Sardis. It's that, like we talked about in, what was it, the last episode, two episodes ago, about, um, uh, I think, Pergamum. We talked about the Acropolis and what's on the Acropolis and how you would defend a city by defending the Acropolis. So they were, uh, these ancient cities almost being built around a mountain that they would know as the Acropolis. On the top of the Acropolis, you would often find the most important buildings, the city centers, and you would want to protect these. It was much easier to protect a mountain, forcing your enemy to fight uphill, both literally and metaphorically. But Sardis also had what was known as a necropolis, a necropolis, which you might find, uh, you might guess... Uh, by the way, you'll find that on your next photo of your slides there. If you go to the next one, that's of the necropolis. And you might guess from just the etymology of the word, it means uh, city of the dead. So it's the dead city, the acropolis and the necropolis. Every city would have had a necropolis. Essentially, it's the city's graveyard is essentially what it is. And it's usually located just inside or just outside the city gates. I think we talked about that on uh, when we talked about parousia. 
with First Thessalonians, we talked about how the cemetery would often be right inside the city gate. So every city had one, but Sardis had a second mountain, the the essentially the twin of the Acropolis, and they used that twin for uh, their city of the dead, for their graveyard. They buried their dead in tombs in the mountainside. Was that so they could defend it? Not No, not as far as I'm aware of at all, but um, I think they just looked at the mountain right next door and went, hey, we're going to... and And this is somewhat related to who Sardis is, um, because Sardis is another one of those cities, like Smyrna. We said Smyrna had a fascination with what, Brent? Can you remember? Uh, Crowns. Uh, Yes, crowns, but also Smyrna. Smyrna. Oh, yes, right. They had a fascination. What is Myrrh connected with? The it, it's what you use when you bury someone, right? Yeah, death, right? Death and resurrection for them. Sardis is another one of those cities that had an awkward fascination with death. Uh, and whether it was because of their surroundings or whether or not they already had the fascination with death and then therefore put their dead on a second mountain, like you're saying, Brent, not necessarily to defend it, but to elevate it. Uh, Sardis was known for its fascination with death and burial. Even as one looks at the horizon around Sardis today, did we do this when you were there, Brent? Did we point out all the, there are hundreds of pyramid mounds that dot the landscape around Sardis. Did we point that out? I believe we did. Yeah. Uh, And and all these pyramids around the, the landscape around Sardis. Each of these mounds represents a tomb of someone very wealthy or noble. Another major theme that we're going to note about the, the, the context here is uh, about first century Rome in general, but particularly with Sardis, was the many earthquakes scattered throughout history. There were major earthquakes recorded in AD, here's going to be a long list here, Brent, AD 17, 19, 21, 24, 29, and then a huge earthquake in AD 60. The earthquake of 60 rocked Sardis so hard that the Acropolis broke into thirds. One third of the mountain fell away to the backside of the city. I've actually gotten to go up on top of the Acropolis. It's quite a little hike. And you can just literally see how that third of that mountain just fell away. One third of the mountain fell uh, to uh, not backwards, but forwards and buried more than 300 acres of the residential portion of Sardis. That had to have been one bad day for them. The final third remains standing. It's what you see in that photo there of the Acropolis in that very first slide. We should pause here to realize that such a disaster is going to play a large part in the writings of Revelation in general, not just the letter to Sardis, but this would have been so well known all throughout the region. Everybody would have known what happened to Sardis. And so I'm not sure how much we're going to talk about this when we go through Revelation and the rest of the book, Brent. So how about we take a look at a few passages where this becomes relevant while we're thinking of it. How about uh, Revelation 6? Uh, give me a passage out of Revelation 6 that might be might find some relevance with this earthquake in Sardis. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, 
and who can withstand it? Seems like a pretty relevant passage there. That second portion was my one of my uh, memorizations Ooh. for for the trip. All right, yeah, absolutely. So you have this massive earthquake, and then people saying to the mountains, "Fall on us!" Right? Okay. Uh, it shows up again in, like, say, Revelation sixteen. Give me a passage out of Revelation sixteen, Brent Billings. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. All right, so, uh, I mean, there are people that would have heard Revelation, and it's so culturally appropriate. People would have heard that and said, I was there for that earthquake. Like, I was, I, my cousin lives in Sardis. Like, I, I know what earthquake he's talking about. Like, it would have been that culturally clear. My point is that these passages are not primarily some cryptic reference to the end times, but are a direct play on the immediate context of the reader's Revelation. As we've seen, if we've been paying attention, we should also learn to ask, where is this in the text? John is getting his material from the Tanakh and applying text to context. And one of those I didn't even pull out is the wine of the fury of his wrath. Well, that's a direct reference to Jeremiah. Take from my hand the cup of, uh, the cup of wrath that is filled with the wine of my fury. God told Jeremiah. So there's a reference there I didn't even catch and put in our notes here. But uh, how about Hosea 10? Hosea 10 probably. If So obviously these passages in Revelation that you just read, Brent, they're coming straight from culture, but we've learned they should probably also be coming from text. And we got a few options, but one of the clearest to me, in my opinion, is Hosea 10. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. All right. Probably some relevant remez work going on there. But there continues to be much more in just the historical context. The city was known as Sard, which may be a good uh, answer to your question earlier in the podcast, Brent, when you asked about, was that Hebrew? Was it? There are three different names that show up in history, Sard, Safarad, and Sardis. Sard is apparently Lydian. Lydian. Perfect. Absolutely. So there's a great uh, answer to your question. Sard, Safarad, and Sardis later in history. Once Sardis became the land of the Lydians that you just referenced and the Phrygians, many different legends arose in that time and culture. The first Lydian king was named Gugu, G-U-G-U, and the Hebrews always referred to him as Gog. He was followed by the next king, who the Hebrews called Magog. Anybody who's an end times buff is going to know the names Gog and Magog and the role that they play in Armageddon. We always think future and we start trying to parse out the future and predict the future and look into our crystal balls, not even realizing those are references going all the way back to history, going backwards, not going forwards. Uh, how about Croesus? Croesus is probably the most famous king of Sardis. We've often heard of the legend of Croesus's gold. I never knew how to spell Croesus. C-R-E-O-S-U-S. C-R-E-O-S-U-S. Croesus is gold. So a legend with all the gold mined from the hills of Sardis. Croesus must have acquired quite a treasure store. 
Since this treasure was never found, legend has it that Croesus hid his gold somewhere in the mountains or even in his own tomb. You know, all those pyramids we saw all over the landscape around Sardis. Treasure hunters will often come and buy a permit uh, to dig in some of those tombs and uh, trying to figure out, trying to find Croesus's gold. Uh, sounds like an old pirate tale, if you ask me. When uh, Cyrus and the Persians arrived later in history, so we know of Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, Cyrus and the Persians, when Persia arrived, they went to lay siege to the city. And Sardis was famous because of their Acropolis. They were known as having this impenetrable city, like it was this undefeatable, this undefeated defense system. Like if you looked at that photo in, that, in your very first slide, that is a healthy mountain. You sit at the bottom of that mountain, Brent. Uh, pretty pretty healthy mountain. Yep. Pretty hard to take if you're coming from the bottom. I certainly didn't climb it. <laughs> it would not be easy. And it was known for being this undefeatable city. It would, have, it, it would never be defeated by enemy invaders. So Cyrus solicited the help of the surrounding peoples to no avail, yet he decided to lay siege to the city anyway. Perplexed as to how to defeat the city, Cyrus had stationed his troops at the bottom of the mighty Acropolis. One day, as a Persian soldier watched, he saw one of the Lydian soldiers of the wall fall asleep, and as his head bobbed, his helmet fell off down the mountainside. As the astute Persian watched, he saw the soldier appear out of nowhere, midway down the mountain, retrieve his helmet, proceed back up to the mountain, and disappear into the same spot. The Persian realized there must be a secret passageway. He was brought to Cyrus, who decided to mount an invasion under the cover of nightfall, based on the observation. The city passageway was found, and according to history, the Persians entered the city to find the Lydians fast asleep. The mighty, invincible Sardis fell that night. That story would be impressive enough if it didn't actually happen to repeat itself. Lightning struck twice. Later in history, when the Seleucids arrived, they were also attempting to take the city when a soldier noticed the enemy soldiers throw a dead donkey over the city wall. The vultures gathered and began to pick at the carcass and then fly up to the city wall and perch while they ate. The soldier surmised that this section of wall must not be guarded as the vultures would not perch there in the presence of soldiers. And again, under the cover of nightfall, the Seleucids went over that section of the wall and to the shock of history students, found the residents fast asleep for the second time. <laughs> Consider the first half of the letter to Sardis. How about you read us as the first paragraph of the letter to Sardis with that content? How far apart were those two stories? Oh, let's see. Persia is going to be... Uh, what, mid-6th century B.C.? Seleucids are going to be 2nd uh, century B.C.? So 400 years. 400 years? Hmm. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Like, it's a long time. Yeah, I can imagine it being, you know, happening. Not remembering that, but crazy that it happened twice to such an impenetrable city defense system. It's like if the people of the United States were starting to forget George Washington. Sure, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. Go ahead and give us the first half of this letter. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, 
I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. All right. So again, we find the context of Sardis to be perfectly fitting. A reputation of being alive, yet you are dead. Spoken to the city with twin mountains, a juxtaposition of life, and a fascination of death. But even more striking is the call to strengthen their defenses and wake up because the thief is upon them. But of course, where is John getting his material? Well, I mean, got to go back a little bit. Yeah, going to have to go to the text. Consider that John's reference to come like a thief, which he uses again later in Revelation, will be lifted straight out of Obadiah. <laughs> you know, Obadiah, like you do, Brent. I think of him every day. <laughs> Obadiah is a pretty obscure prophet. Why go to Obadiah for his material? Like, is John really that desperate he's going to Obadiah? No, I'll tell you why. Because Obadiah happens to be the only book of the Bible outside of Revelation that mentions the city of Sardis and Sepharad. Brent, go ahead and read us the closing to the book of Obadiah. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephat. Yep. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So here is the reference uh, from Obadiah that John is utilizing. But tell me this reference doesn't perfectly fit for the people of Sardis. Uh, and, and you may, you know, if you're like, really like, okay, but wait a minute, who is Obadiah? You may want to go back and listen to that episode on Petra if you want to. But listen to Obadiah earlier in the letter and tell me if this doesn't fit perfectly. I mean, it's so crazy. This is the only letter that mentions Sardis. And yet the message of Obadiah fits so perfectly. It wasn't written to Sardis. It was written to Petra. It was written to the, the Edomites, right? And yet it's going to fit the context here that John's dealing with in Revelation absolutely perfectly. Go ahead and read me earlier in the letter, Brent. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Okay, first of all, is this fitting for Sardis? Were they high and lofty, haughty people making their homes up on heights? Yeah, perfect so far. All right, let's see what the next verse says. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Hidden treasures? What? What? Hidden treasures? Oh, crisis? Okay, go ahead. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Yeah. Text to context. Let's turn to Isaiah for some more text to context. Give me some Isaiah, Brent. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. 
I will give you hidden treasures. Hidden treasures. Riches stored in secret places. Secret places. So that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. All right. One of the points I'm trying to stress is that Revelation is not primarily a look into the future. It's a look in the opposite. Can I, let's just pause for a moment too, because I'm going to get this email a lot. So let's just deal with this just now. Because everybody is going to want to write me, um, very similar to when we went through the book of Genesis at the very, very beginning. Can you, can you remember all the way back in 2016, Brent, we were going through Genesis? It was, it was a wild time. Oh man, it was good. Well, we have people starting the Genesis journey every week, you know, we, so, so there's always people going through that experience for the first time. And one of the most common emails you get in just the first few episodes is people trying to make sure they can hang on to both narratives. Like, okay, you're telling me that it's not about how creation was done. You're telling me it's not about whether or not there's a literal flood, but I can still believe in a literal flood, right? And all this stuff can still be true, right? And it's that creation could have still happened that way. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of room in the story for that. Does it, and I don't know, I can't, I don't know if I can ask you that, Brent. Do you suppose that it feels different 80 episodes later when you've been wrestling with this stuff for some time? Like maybe those questions have found a different home in your consciousness? Yeah, just a different priority. Right. Yeah, you've learned how to ask a new set. That would be a better way to put it. That's a good point. Revelation will cause all of those monsters to come right back out of the closet again. Nothing makes us lose our marbles like eschatology. Uh, We preached on Revelation uh, at our church, Brent. Remember that? Remember that series we did on Revelation? Oh, yeah. Whew. That was fun. Uh, Remember what our pastor said about that that series how did he how did he feel about that he couldn't wait for it to be over couldn't wait for it to be over and said he would never ever preach on revelation again (laughs) we had more people leave the church like there are two things you just you don't mess with people on and it's eschatology and politics and if you do that boy watch the hate mail come out i mean hate mail it's unbelievable so before you send me all your crazy emails and because what's going to happen is you're going to go full circle very passionately with lots of conviction, kind of back to your Genesis days. And you're going to be like, okay, but Revelation is still about the future, right? And, and my answer is, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's not about the future for me. There's plenty of room to believe that, but I'm going to keep saying it's not primarily about the future. If you want to tell me, Marty, I think that it has a secondary meaning and it's also about the future. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, and I mean, exactly what we're referencing here, Hosea and Obadiah and Isaiah were not written sure. for the sake of John being able to quote them later in Revelation. Absolutely. They were written for their day. Absolutely. But John can certainly use them. Correct. Same as the future for us can use what is written in Revelation. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So all that is absolutely possible, but I want us to understand what good hermeneutics are about. And the hermeneutic is the consistent hermeneutic to everything we've used through our entire study for four sessions of this. That hermeneutic says that we're going to try to understand the intent of the original conversation and not make up some other some other conversation that's not in the original text, in the original conversation. So yes, can it be about the future? Yes. But Revelation is not primarily a look into the future. It's a look in the opposite direction. We find ourselves ill-equipped to understand Revelation because we don't know our Old Testament. Having decided it's all secondary information, We have rendered our New Testament understanding and theology void of accuracy and power and our ability to interpret and receive John's message. But alas, we're only halfway through the letter. Brent, we need to keep 
ongoing. So we continue our study of Sardis and the context that drives the letter in Revelation. If we proceed, if we were to go from the mountain, we just look at some photos from the mountain. If we were to go down into the city ruins, we would find the second largest uh, gymnasium. And remember when I say gymnasium, you think what, Brent? University. University. That's right. Education. So we, we, we found the second largest school, in essence, in the Roman world of Asia and Asia Minor, second only to the gymnasium of Domitian in Ephesus. If you were to walk into the center courtyard of the gymnasium, you would be able to spin around to admire the palestra, which is the colonnaded courtyard whose edges would have been, would have housed the many classrooms utilized for Greco-Roman study. We even showed pictures of this all the way back at the beginning of session three when we talked about Hellenism. So within the palestra, within the palestra, and the palestra was what, Brent, remind us? The classrooms. Yeah. And the palestra itself was like the courtyard and the, the classrooms courtyard. kind of dotted. And in that courtyard, they would do everything from like PE to physical studies to all kinds of different things. But the palestra was the courtyard and around the edge of that courtyard, usually a marbled colonnade and many classrooms underneath that colonnade. So within the palestra and the gymnasium walls, within it, like inside the actual structure of the gymna- uh, the gymnasium would actually be the largest synagogue found in the ancient world. And actually, if you cue that next picture on your presentation, you'll see kind of a shot of, of, of us looking through the synagogue, and it's only a portion. I mean, that, that picture is like a third of the synagogue. Um, but you're, you're looking through the ruins of the synagogue, through where the wall would have been, and you're seeing in the background of that picture, you're seeing the apse, which is like kind of the, uh, the, the grand foyer of... The, the gymnasium. And you can see kind of the pillars that line the edge there. That's, that's what forms your palestra. That goes all the way around a gigantic square. So this synagogue, the point of this photo, is this synagogue sits directly inside the gymnasium. And, and I, I long to take all of you with me to Turkey so that we can go see so, this and so many other things in Sardis because it's a fantastic stop. Sardis is incredible. Yes. There's so much to see and learn there. Absolutely. So why would you put a place of Jewish worship and education so close to a place of Greco-Roman education? When you talk, when you, when you walk through the ruins of the synagogue, you are struck by many different features. First, there are no images on the floor. If you actually look at that photo uh, that we have there, you'll notice on the floor, there's no pictures of animals. There's no, just geometric shapes and designs. There's no images on the floor. But you'll also see a, a, a Torah closet, and I've chosen not to include those, those photos here with us, but you, you'll see it. Come, come see them in person. You'll see this ornate Torah closet and a Moses seat, what, would, what you would expect to find from a devout Jewish community. So everything's lining up here, Brent. No images in the floor. Um, a very ornate and emphasis on the Torah and the one reading the Torah. This seems to all fit very well. But there are other features which suggest maybe compromise. If you go to the next photo, you see lions sitting, and they don't think those were brought in in a different setting. They believe those were a part of the synagogue that was sitting at the time. You'll notice the lions uh, toward the front of the synagogue, which wouldn't be alarming in another context, except for, we haven't talked about the goddess of Sardis, Brent. Uh, the goddess of Sardis, her name was Kibbala, and Kibbala. Uh, she was always shown riding two 
lions. The lion is the animal of Kibbeleh. It seems like a really odd choice for the synagogue in Sardis to put lions in the synagogue. The Torah reading table in that same photo, you can see on the edge of the reading table, it has, what, what do you see there, Brent, when you look at that photo? It looks like an eagle. looks like eagles. Eagles being the famous image of what empire? Mm, the American Empire. Well, outside of the uh, <laughs> the modern day Empire, uh, what was the ancient? Where do is we? It, where is do it we a get the from Rome? It is. Okay. Yeah, it is. The Golden Eagle stands at the top of many of their uh, images and and flagpoles and all kinds of things that they use throughout the Roman Empire. Banners, I should call it. Flagpoles is more our our thing today, but in their ancient world, banners. So you have lions, you have what appears to be the Roman eagle on the side of the Torah table, and then you have the synagogue's location. Remember, the, lo- the location of the synagogue is it's built where, Brent? Inside. Inside the, the gymnasium. gymnasium. Not by, not next door to, but inside the gymnasium, which raises a huge wrestling match. Is this ancient community committed to missional living, or is this a community struggling with compromise? Or is it both? It could be that what the letter spoke of, uh, it could be that when, when, when the letter of the Sardis says, wake up and strengthen your defenses, that they had a reputation of being alive and yet were dead, it could be that they're people of compromise. Of course, the archaeological team from Harvard, who did the project here at Sardis, they disagree. And I happen to agree with the people from Harvard. I usually like to. They're usually pretty smart people. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would hope so. <laughs> The team at Harvard pointed out that there is a Christian Christian bishop stationed in Sardis long after Revelation was written, so it has no relevance to Revelation, but his name was Bishop Melito, and one of the most anti-Semitic, Bishop Melito was one of the most anti-Semitic bishops in Asia and Asia Minor. He mounted numerous written attacks against the Jews of Sardis in particular, and not once did he ever accuse them of compromise. If their history was so littered with compromise, this would be a strange omission. Like if he really wanted to attack the Jews and they were even dabbling with idolatry, I'm pretty sure Bishop Melito would have been like, hey, they're not even good Jews, but he never said that once. Harvard also pointed out that there's a mikvah, uh, a mikvah fountain. If you go to your next picture, you're going to see this fountain in a courtyard that sits right at the entrance of the synagogue. And we talked about synagogue all the way back in session three, Brent, at the very beginning of the session. And one of the very things, one of the seven features of a synagogue was? The mikvah. Mikvah. And usually the mikvah was, what, what was kind of the design of the mikvah? Typically, uh, you would walk down into it. You would walk down. It's like a, a full-on baptistry, and you fully immerse. And yet, mikvah wasn't required, unless you were from certain schools of thought. It wasn't required to be a full immersion. You could also uh, do a non-immersion mikvah. That was an acceptable. And here, they have taken this mikvah, and it doubles not only as a mikvah but also as a public fountain. There were eleven fountains in Sardis. Three of them provided free of charge. To the citizens of Sardis. And one of them, according to history, is the mikvah at the synagogue in Sardis. One of the three free ones. Yes. Okay. And I'm not sure how exactly that worked, and I'd have to go back and check my notes on the details for sure, but that was uh, one of uh, 11 public fountains with free access in the city of Sardis. Maybe all 11 were free. I'd have to actually go back and check that. It seems like, to me... I agree with Harvard. It seems like we have an ancient group of people trying to be a light to the Gentiles. But for now, let's take this conversation back towards the mountains. Let's go back to the mountains of Sardis, where the great temple to Kibbeleh 
sits between, exactly between, the Acropolis and the Necropolis, symbolizing the mythology of Sardis that surrounded life, death, and resurrection. One side of the temple would frame the Acropolis. Like if you were looking towards the Acropolis, if you were facing that direction, the temple sat in such a way that you would see the Acropolis framed in the doorway. And then if you went around to the other side, looking the other direction through the door of the temple, it framed the Necropolis. The myth of Kibla is what would eventually give rise to the Greco-Roman worship of a goddess by the name of Artemis. Have we heard of Artemis before, Brent? Where did we talk about Artemis? Where did we talk about Artemis? Yes. Uh, Ephesus? Ephesus. Very good. According to the story, Kibla had both male and female genitalia and was able to procreate on her own. Her grandson was enamored with her and longed to sleep with her. But if you're thinking this myth is a little crazy, it is. But Kibla, in need of no male companionship, continually rejected him, and in a frenzied attempt to prove his undying devotion to her, the grandson castrated himself and offered his prized organs on the altar as an act of ultimate worship. Every year in Sardis, over one million people would visit the city for a great 40-day celebration commemorating the myth. At multiple times during the festival, a large procession would leave from the city center with everyone dressed in white robes, and they would make their way up to the temple to Kibbala. The goal was to get yourself into such a drunken lather that you would be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice and recreate the myth, offering your own castration to the goddess. As one might imagine, not everyone would engage in this most holy of acts, but the priests of Kibbala had declared that if you got some of the blood of those who did on your white robe, their offering would be accepted on your behalf. So obviously not everybody is going through with the whole idea, but if you can be close to somebody who does and get their blood on your robe, it's as if you did. And so actually, if you look at this next picture on your uh, presentation there, you can actually see the size and the... Ma- was, was this a big uh, big uh, um, temple? Massive. It was huge. Um, and I believe we're even missing a couple drums on those pillars you see on the very left. I think there's a couple drums even missing. They were, they were even a little higher than that. This was a massive, massive temple to Kibla. And you can see... Actually, I love Brent's picture here because you can see on this picture, you can see the doorway in the very back behind the pillars. Right in the middle of the temple sits the doorway. And you can see how when the doorway was there, it's framing the necropolis perfectly in the doorway. So the doorway sits right there and right behind it, you see the tip of the necropolis, the city of the dead. So it gives you an idea of the temple that we're working with here, the size and the magnitude of the celebration that happened here. But if you were to go there today and examine the ruins of the temple to Kibla, you might notice a small building built into the corner of the ruins. If you go to the next picture, you'll actually see a photo of this building. This building dates to around 3rd or 4th century, near the time that Kibla worship and paganism is dying out in Sardis, but the point still stands. It happens to be the ruins of a small church. Much too small to be a place of corporate worship. Uh, maybe what, 10, 20, 30 people could fit in there, Brent, you think? I mean, we had about 30. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so, uh, 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 it's, uh, too small to be a corporate worship place, but some scholars have noticed the circular shape and identified it. What was circular in the ancient Greco-Roman world, Brent? Where'd we see circles? Only one God had circular temples that we found. 
We found them at Pergamum. There was a god of healing. Oh, Asclepius. Asclepius. And the Asclepion is always a round, if you think back to those photos of the diagnostic center, always a round temple. They noted the round features to this church and said, this, this is a medical clinic. This small little church isn't a place of corporate worship, but some scholars identified it as a medical clinic. Some have theorized that Christians here in Sardis started to start a mission-based medical clinic and offer care to those who engaged in the pagan worship of Kibbola. I have always loved that picture that you see there. Whether the historicity of that claim is accurate or not, it's highly debated, and we could debate that till we're blue in the face. But the picture of a community of people building their church on the corner of the Kibbala temple is an incredible image to me. It reminds me of Jesus' words at Caesarea Philippi that, uh, about where he would build his church. He would build his church on the very gates of hell. But I find myself reading the last half of the letter of Sardis with brand new eyes. See for yourself. Go ahead, Brent, and finish off the letter for us and see if this makes any sense with some context. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What a wonderful picture. May we be those who are willing to walk with him into the darkest of places bringing light and care, love and hope into the worst chaos imaginable. May we be willing to continue to build our churches at the Kebola temples and in shopping malls in the inner cities as ways of walking with him dressed in white. And may we never forget the importance of not staining our robes. Feels to me, Brent, like the tension we talked about all the way back with Shfela. How do you live at the intersection of chaos and shalom and remain true. And I believe back then we said no pig bones, I think is what we said. Can't have any pig bones, no pig bones. And yet at the same time, not run off to just play it safe to where you don't have to deal with any pig bones and run off and live in the Jude mountains. That's the great tension. It was in the book of Judges and Joshua. It's the same tension in the book of Revelation. It's the same tension that you and I live in today. It's like it's one big narrative or it's something. It's like it's one big story. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A pretty good chunk of material there. Uh, hopefully you get a chance to look over those pictures. If you were not able to, as we were talking about them, please go back and check those out and then come to Turkey and see, uh, see everything in person. Put your see hands the real on deal. it. Yeah. See everything. Yeah. So yeah, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.